This special episode of the Danger Close podcast is brought to you by Red Sky Morning, the seventh novel in the James Reese Terminal List series. It is coming in hot on May 14th in hardcover, ebook, and audiobook. Go to officialjackcar.com to pre order your copy today. Welcome to the Danger Close podcast. My guest today, Marine Corps veteran Johnny Joey Jones. He is the author of Unbroken Bonds of Battle. He lost both legs in Afghanistan. Incredible guy. You can find him now on the Fox News Channel. And now, without further ado, Joey Jones. Dude, we've been meaning to do this for a while. Thank you so much for for joining me. I sincerely appreciate it. And uh, first, where where are you? What's in the background there? Yeah, I'm in. Uh, this is my breakout room. I uh, my wife and I back in April made the decision to sell everything we had, and we bought this little cow farm a whole lot closer. Uh, a whole lot closer to where our family is. It's actually in the town that my son goes to school. You know, my son's been with his mom his whole life as far as during the school year. And uh, it's a long story, but my wife and I have been in his, in his life since he was one year old. And, um, you know, you, you're there for the summer vacations. You're there for every other weekend that you can get, every other school break you can get. You know, I still days to, to have him at my house all the time as he's growing up. But going into high school, just what I believe life is all about, being a man, teaching your son to be a man, be there for him, teach him to be as, you know, ro- you know, callous hands and a soft touch, the whole deal. I really felt like having more time with him was important uh, on the day-to-day basis on the little things. And so I talked to my wife about it and we're like, you know what, let's move. And so we moved up here to the town he goes to high school, which ironically, his mom ended up moving 45 minutes away. So he's about 50% of the time in our house now. And, um, and so we, I say a little cow for him, it's 40 acres and a, a, a nice enough house. My happy, my wife was happy, but for me, the man cave is this barn I have. So, uh, that's where I'm at right now. Nice. And can you hunt on the property? Yeah, I've got a, I've got a river that backs up to the property and there are deer all around us. But honestly, what I've hunted on this property more than anything is I've got a pond in front of my house. And there have been 20 to 50 geese on that pond every month of the year. So at the beginning of season and at the end of season, we had to, uh, we had to alleviate the herd deer a little bit. <laughs> amazing. Amazing. Well, I love it. But uh, I know I only have you for an hour, but uh, man, I got to tell you, um, this is an emotional read. I was not expecting that at all. Um, you know, I expect, you know, a couple, you know, part here or there, you know, this is incredible, and it's not all about you. I love how you do, how you've done it with these stories of people that you've know or you met after or during or through someone else, but then have your commentary as well. But the intro, you're an amazing writer. The intro that you <laughs> is it, it's so good, uh, but very emotional read. I think every American needs to read this. But I want to ask you about your dad and uh, growing up in that wisdom. I mean, you start off with him in this in this book and that uh, that that wisdom that he passed on to, to you. Um, so, uh, obviously very influential in your life. So, um, tell me about your dad. Yeah, no, it's, it, I, you know, when we wrote the book, I say we, cause I worked with, a um, another writer and he interviewed each of the people in there based on me outlining what, what I felt like their story was, but they were so close to me. I was really afraid that if I interviewed them, I wouldn't get their story. I'd get their story in relation to me. And so I worked with this guy, Gary Brozak, he's a really great writer. And he interviewed them and transcribed their their thoughts and helped me organize them. And like you said, the stuff that's in my voice I wrote. And so when it came time for me to do my part of the writing, um, <laughs> there were these themes that came to be that I had no idea were there. I didn't know that's what was on my heart. I didn't know that's where I wanted to go. But I read all of their chapters. And then I go through and read each chapter and kind of write down notes. And I kind of did this process I made up on my own. And I learned that the themes were in no particular order a father-son relationship, or in some cases, lack thereof, football and hunting. And, yeah. and a, a theme in the sense of not only is it something that most of the guys in the book and, and the one female not have in common, but more so the, the the dynamic that showed through that not only do we have these things in common, but they were vitally important to becoming the men that we became and making the choices that we made. And when you read the book, you read like, Daniel Ridgway wouldn't be a Marine if he hadn't joined a hunting club. And Greg Rabuski wouldn't be a Marine if he hadn't missed his father figure and was looking for that. And Amos Benjamin wouldn't be in our lives uh, if if it weren't for the struggles he had and having his older brother fill that role of father uh, and losing his dad the way he did. So 
I didn't really process all of that. I just read and enjoyed and then sat down and said, okay, what do I have to say? And, you know, from the talks I give when I'm in front of a crowd to obviously this book, I usually don't make it a couple of minutes without mentioning my dad. And, um, and I think the reason why um, he's been so influential in my life in death, even more so than in life, I lost him back in 2019 um, and, it, and I was there for it. You know, you've put guys on a bird and you don't think much about it in the minute until later on. But when you do CPR on your dad, man, it just, it's a different world. And, um, and so for my dad, he was 5'8". He was, he had social anxiety. Uh, he was very disciplined. He's pretty much the opposite of me in every way you think of, you know, I'm this guy that's outgoing. I love to be in a crowd if it's my crowd. I was six one when I had legs. I'm about six foot now. And uh and both of his brothers were well over six foot tall. His dad was over six foot tall. He was literally the runt of the family, but he was the oldest brother. He was the one that everybody went to when they needed help. And he was the kind of man that, you know that saying Jack of all trades, master of none. He knew how to do everything and he knew how to do it right. And that was important to him. It wasn't worth doing if it wasn't, if he didn't want to do it right. So that's how with internal discipline, I kind of refer to him almost as like a Byronic hero. He needed to suffer some to be happy with where his place was. Like he felt like his place in life was to provide and protect. And there needed to be a little bit of pain and agony in that. Some of it self-imposed and some of it due to the nature of the fact he was a brick and block mason. But he enjoyed to be by himself and to feel like he gave something up for those around him. And I think in that way, uh, he definitely left an impact on me. Oh, yeah. I mean, you definitely you can tell by the way that uh, like you write about him in here. It was really cool to, to read that and also to read about how he could walk into a room and do the do the math on on just the building. Yeah. You know, just, just it was so good at that sort of thing because um, that's a, it stood out to me because it's a skill that I do not possess. Um, but, uh, when he, when he was taking for those rides in the, in the truck, it was really cool. You said he, he took you in the, in his truck to get you to sleep as a kid. And then later yeah. in pass on lessons, like you got in that truck and you went on these, uh, backcountry roads and he would pass along this wisdom to you. When you think about those rides, like, is there one that stands out to you as some, something he passed along? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, what we did it a lot and we called it low friend. If you're from the South, it's just one of those words that makes no sense, but it does. And the reason why is, you know, he'd go out and we were going to go to one person's house. The next thing you know, you're going to somebody else's house and they're 10 miles in between. And, you know, five hours into it, you visited 10 people and driven a hundred miles. And, uh, and he, as a brick and block mason, what he liked about it was every job site was somewhere new. So every week he went to a new place of work and he never wanted to go there and back the same way. So he had, he knew the roads better than firemen do. Like you, you could drop him off on highway 225 anywhere for a hundred miles. And he didn't know exactly where he was at. And so we'd go on these rides, but part of it for him was just, just kind of, that was his opportunity, I think, to connect with me and talk. And and he was, had his eyes forward, his hands on his steering wheel, and he could just talk to this person in the seat. So I, the one that sticks out probably the most is in right after high school, my long-term girlfriend, who's now my wife, so I, I figured it out, but she broke up with me. And, you know, as a guy, you, your heart gets broken. You're like, okay, well, I can just make this one change and we should be able to get back together again. This is no big deal, right? Like you think I'm selfish. I just won't be selfish and we'll fix this and move on. And, you know, with women, it just doesn't work that way. It took me 10 years to get her back, you know, but, uh, but my dad saw that I was kind of moping around and this was my first time really getting my heart broke. And, uh, he said, you know what? We were working up. I forgot where it was at. And I found this cave. Why don't we take this rope and go check this cave out? So my buddy Keith was with me and he's a smaller guy than me. And next thing you know, we're driving for an hour and a half to get to some cave he knew about, probably knew about it for the last 30 years, but he made it sound like he just saw it the other day. And, um, and long story short, we get there and I'm too big to go down in the hole. So we tie a rope that we use on scaffolding on the brake job around my buddy Keith's waist and lower him down in there. And he's down in there. He's finding stuff. People painted on the walls. It gets real big and cavernous down in there because we're up in the mountains. And uh, But the whole drive out there and drive back, he just kind of, really what he did was let me talk. And then he'd have a little anecdote to say here or there. But I think the point of it was more than anything, you know, the way he would frame things, he kind of wanted me to know, hey, getting your heart broke is a good thing because that means that you've had, you've known what the relationship is and you've, you've been in, in something like that. And uh, and he was always an optimist. He's like, I just give her some time, you know. But he'd say stuff like one of his favorite sayings was, don't complain about the rain, complain about its timing. What? And 
really what he means by that is things happen to you in life. Sometimes they're a blessing. They just don't feel like it in the moment. And that was very much how I felt about her breaking up with me. I'd been talking to a Marine Corps recruiter. I actually went to her house and said, look, I'm not, I'm not joining the Marine Corps because of you, but you're the only reason I would stay. And she looked at me and smiled and said, well, have a good time in boot camp. And so I looked back and I think they were all in on it. They all knew that I needed to get out of town and go grow up a little bit. And, uh, and he was excited to see me do that. Oh man. Yeah. It really comes across in the, in the book. What's uh, What year did you join the Marine Corps? Why did you choose uh, the Corps rather than another service? Uh, well, listen, I know who I'm talking to, but just hear me out on this. This is, you know, this was my experience in the moment. This was, I love to tell this story. Um, if you'll, if you'll humor me, it's a great story because I think a lot of people can relate. I, I grew up in a small town, Dalton, Georgia. I graduated high school in 2005. So I had guys that I played football with that had already joined and gone to war and come back. But the war was still pretty early looking back now. And I remember thinking, man, I better hurry up and get in there. I'm going to miss this thing. And, you know, here we are looking back going, I could have become a doctor and, and still fought in this war. And so maybe I got a little ahead of myself. My two best friends talked me into joining. And the, the reason I chose the Marine Corps more than anything, and I've only recently really put thought into this, I went, you know, the Army recruiter would come and he would promise college. And the Air Force recruiter would come. And he would promise an occupation, a nine to five that you could have after the Air Force. The Navy recruiter would come and he would promise travel, you know, see the world, sell the world. And then the Marine Corps recruiter would come and he'd say, ah, you know what? I don't think you have what it takes. You're welcome to try. You know, and it was that demeanor and that idea of, well, don't tell me I can't do it. You know, don't tell me that, you know, and, and that idea that it would grow me up and turn me into something better. I played football and laid brick and block, but I was still, you know, a teenager and I had a lot of growing up to do. And my dad was big on respect. He was the kind of guy that he acted like he had been in the military, just the way he carried himself. And I don't know where it came from other than his two granddads, but it, it was an easy transition for me, but I didn't have it all before I got there just because my dad acted that way. I needed somebody else to tell me that's the way you act to, to appreciate it in my dad. And so I, the Marine Corps recruiter just kind of had that air about him. He was a, he was a muscular guy. He was kind of big and um, and he really was intimidating and he made me feel like he was doing me a favor to sign on that dotted line. And as much as, you know, we make fun of that now, I'm glad it's the way it was. Oh, man, that is, uh, that is awesome. Uh, so does that mean that you were like an eighth grade on nine 11? Ninth grade. I, I graduated at 17. Okay. And, uh, so yeah, I was in ninth grade and I remember watching the first tower fall in wake training, um, I was, they had a TV on there and it was never on because they wanted us to work out. And the coach came in, turned the TV on. I was weight training for football. And that evening we were out on the football field or later that week, I can't remember. And our coach, we were all laying on our back dressing. And the, and the coach kind of took a minute and said, look up guys, see what you don't see. And there were no planes in the sky. And he's, and I can't remember if it was that day or later, it was early on. And he said, you know, what happened today may not register now, but it's changing the world and it's going to change your life too. And, uh, and I really appreciate it. He was a Marine Corps veteran. And, uh, and he saw, he knew what was coming. And he knew a bunch of us out there on that football field were going to be wearing a uniform. Wow. And then why EOD? Where along the lines did you find out about EOD? Did you know about it before or once you got in? No. path into, into EOD? Man, my, I say this all the time. My family were moonshiners. If they were, if they were doing public service, it was in an orange jumpsuit because they got caught doing what they weren't supposed to do. I didn't have a, a big military influence. One of my best friends, his dad had served in Desert Storm and was was also a teacher and a coach. And so I had, I was around him, but it was still somebody else's dad. It wasn't anybody in my family. And so um, I joined the Marine Corps without knowing anything about it other than like Full Metal Jacket. And when you watch Full Metal Jacket, beyond being just an amazing piece of cinema, it is also kind of multiple movies in one. But by the time you get to, you know, the the scenes where they're deployed, you realize that Private Joker is combat journalist, right? He, he's not an infantryman, but you see these scenes where he's fighting for his life. And so without any other version of the military in front of me, I'm like, okay, well, we're all going to live in a squad bay and carry a rifle. And some of us are smart enough to learn other jobs. That's kind of what I thought it was going to be. So the recruiter got me in on a... Uh, communications electronics contracts. I was fixing radios. And evidently I had the intelligence for it, but I did not have the interest in being in this sterile environment, grounded to a table, soldering. 
So I started raising my hand for everything the minute I got to my first duty station, which was in Hawaii. So I went on USS Rushmore and flipped pancakes for three months for RIMPAC. I became a range coach. Uh, I ended up uh, guarding nuke subs at Pearl Harbor when they uh, changed the nuclear rods out. If there was a detail, I volunteered for it for two reasons. I wanted to see what else was out there and I wanted to be so bad at working on radios. They let me go do something else. And so um, I ended up, I was able in a very roundabout way and the Marine Corps prides itself on having the least amount of people and the most amount of jobs. So you can laterally move and be built all over the place back at this time anyway. And so I ended up being uh, mounted security for convoys in Iraq in 2007. Mm -hmm. And my team got picked to be the EOD security. So rather than a convoy, we did EOD escort. And I had some, some experience with EOD and Pearl Harbor, they would kind of war game us with fake IEDs. And I'd already kind of started a package because I'd learned about it, but I didn't know much about it. I just wanted to do something different. But then doing the security for them in, uh, in Iraq in 2007 and eight, I ended up putting that package in, interviewing with that team and doing on the job training with that team for, I think six of 10 months I was there. And I picked it and the recall you have to, you can't come in off the street on a contract for EOD simply mm -hmm. because there aren't a lot of Marines. So there isn't a huge EOD field and they spend a lot of money. They give the Navy a lot of money to train you and they don't want to send you unless they know you're going to do it. So you have to be an E5 to do EOD um, in the Marine Corps. Oh, interesting. I wonder if you can go in the Navy on an EOD contract. I think you can. I think there's some sort of a, but it's kind of like probably the SEAL route and and uh, Rescue Swimmer where they give you the opportunity to try out. It like guarantees you a tryout more than anything else. So it really doesn't make a difference at all. Maybe they can tack a couple of years on or something. Kind of one of the I'll tell you, the, the Navy's smart. So what the Navy did back then, everything's different now. I, it's hard to believe it. I've been out of the Marine Corps for more than 10 years. I've been out of the UD show for that long. But back when I was in school and, and really working in the field, what they would do, the Navy... I don't remember if on the enlisted side, if they had uh, lower rank con open contracts. I think all of the other three services bring in commissioned officers in which you can come in young. The Marine Corps didn't do any commissioned officers in their EOD field either. It was all warrant officer and laterally uh, LDOs. And so what the Navy did do that I thought was awesome is, and, you know, this is a little bit of a derogatory term, but we didn't know it as that. But they have what were they, what they called bud stuff that would come because they'd already been through dive school and they, they had that training and they ended up leaving buds for reasons that weren't bad character. And so they brought them over to the EOD community and they did really well. there. They'd already, already had all the prerequisites to work in special warfare and they brought them over to EOD. So a lot of the guys came from that. No kidding. Uh, so is it the same school? Is, did you go to Navy EOD school for mm -hmm. the Corps? Uh, okay. Yeah, it's, it's funny. It's a Navy ran school on an air force piece of property 51% of the students are Army, and uh, a disproportionate amount of the instructors are Marines. And it's just kind of, that's the culture, and it works really well. No kidding. Yeah, one of my dearest friends is a, a former Navy EOD guy, and uh, I think I can say his name. I put him in the back of the book. He's never said, uh, <laughs> I, I shouldn't. So Jeff Rotherham, amazing guy. And I always check what I put EOD-wise in the novels. I send it to him and ask him to... to uh, kind of fix it up if I made anything atrocious mistake, but also take like one ingredient out or one yeah. type of thing out just so some kid doesn't blow themselves up in the basement type of a deal. But my whole intent <laughs> that is always so that if an EOD guy reads it and gets to one of these places where I'm building an ID or having the guy, whatever it is, um, that they say, oh, he put in the work. He put in the work to try to get this right. Uh, and, oh, look what he left out. I see what he did here. So that's my goal always with the uh, building IEDs or talking about EOD. And this last one, I put in a, uh, a Marine Corps EOD guy who helped save the day in this last book. <laughs> it's, uh, that's awesome. Um, and uh, how was that school for you? Did you have any any uh, issues? Is there high attrition there? I mean, it seems like a stressful thing to go do. I mean, I could never, I mean, I've been out with EOD guys you know, with us to just run through the houses with us and are attached the whole thing that never have to do the job. And then I've been out stopping the convoy and having the EOD guys walk up to something. And uh, more often than not, they would just pick it up and like throw it in the back of the Humvee and they're like, <laughs> off we would go or blow it up, blow it in place or whatever. But, oh my gosh, so much respect for anybody that chooses to do that and then do, does it downrange. It's just incredible. It was interesting. You know, when I came in, the movie Hurt Locker had just come out and that's, not very accepted in the community for a lot of obvious reasons. Um, oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. 
And there's this culture in, in EOD, it's kind of across the board. I can primarily speak to Marine and Navy because that's where I spent most of my time, but we really strive to be completely silent professionals. The idea is if you want any of the credit, you're doing it for the wrong reasons, you gotta get somebody hurt. And uh, you know, with 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 guns or bombs, it's the same thing. Like that that mentality has to be there. What you do after you leave is different, but while you're in, you wanna be as anonymous and part of this. So we don't give challenge coins, we'll give an EOD badge. You know, we don't even make challenge coins most of the time. Um, and it's that idea of, you know, you're just, you're rank and file and what you do is important, but you don't, you don't do it for the credit. So when, you know, Hurt Locker came out, there was some of that about, I don't even know his name, the guy that kind of was the inspiration for it, but I loved it. Once I learned the job for two reasons, just like you said, number one, you can't learn anything about the job watching the movie. Like you can't because nothing in the movie is very accurate. Some things are egregiously inaccurate, but what it does do is it translates the intensity of the job. And I think a lot of BOD techs stop shy of, of really thinking through this. The most intense moment working an ID, everything's quiet and still. There's not noise. There's not commotion. There are a bunch of Marines provided security, hoping nothing goes wrong, making sure no one messes with you while you do your job. You can just about hear your sweat, leave your brow and drop on the ground as you're deciding what to do. Now you're very confident it's not like in the movies where it's like red wire or, or blue wire. When you see the problem, is what we call it, the IED, you know what actions you're going to take. You're just methodically doing it. And so you can't translate that intensity into cinema without other things for the audience to feel it. So when people walk away from Burlocker, I think they have a very real and accurate feeling of what that job is like, the intense moments. There, there isn't a moment really where you're in a bomb suit and you pull a pistol on somebody, but that intense moment, that standoff that the audience can actually digest and understand in that scene is what I feel leaning over an ID that I've seen a hundred times, hoping this isn't the one that's booby trapped. And so I think to get that across to people and, and to go back to your original question of kind of what was it like in that school and, and kind of why I do it almost, um, it's just kind of cross section of, uh, of, arrogance and ignorance and, and the best version of both. You are just arrogant enough to buy into the idea that if you've done everything you're supposed to do, you're going to win. And you're just ignorant enough to the fact that the truth being, if the enemy does everything right, it's hard for you to win. And so I use those two words to kind of capture people's attention, but I'm not calling it arrogant or ignorant. It's the, the best version of those two uh ideas because you really have to be able to turn off in the back of your mind that survival instinct that says, don't do this, it will kill you. And you do it not because you want to be a cowboy or you want credit, you do it because somebody has to. I mean, somebody has to. That's the only way to get down this road, to get across this bridge, to win this war, to take these people home. And we do breed a culture of learn everything inside and out, share information, take data. I mean, every time I worked an IED, even in the worst conditions, I've got a little, back then, a little digital camera. I'm taking cardinal directions, taking pictures, writing down notes. So at some point, either tomorrow or next month, I write a report and share that information with the other EOD teams. And they they do a great job of creating a culture in the school because they can't kill you, right? They can't just blow you up for making a mistake. That kind of, that's more of a Russian tactic. And mm -hmm. so uh, they can't just let you get blown up. So you're working on W ordinance, but they have to create that anxiety to see how you're going to deal with it. So the way they structure the school, it's a train running on a track, right? Like it's, you're constantly moving every year. There are 10 or 12 sections and no one section is more than about a week. Most sections are less than a week. You test about three times in each section. So there are days where you learn about this new section this morning, you're testing this afternoon, or you moved into it this afternoon, you're testing tomorrow morning. You got to make an 86 or better on the test to pass. I'm sorry, an 85 or better on the test to pass. So if you make an 84, you fail. Well, a 16-point hit is something that would kill you. An 8-point hit is something that might kill you. A 4-point hit is something that could kill you. And so they create this anxiety because if you fail a test, there, you have to retake it right away. If you fail it twice, you're technically out of school. You got to go in front of a board and talk them into letting you back in, in which case you, you've lost your class because that train kept moving. And a couple of days later, you got to go back to the beginning of the next one coming through. So they create this academic intensity. And for a school that's probably 50% laterally moving into it, 
That means half your students know they've got to go back to being a cook or, or whatever it was they wanted to leave. So they really want to be there. They really want to get through this school. And so you create that anxiety, the stress, but in a positive way of, hey, it's not just perform, it's make a hundred every time. And our, our, our slogan up until, or motto up until, honestly, we had so many guys get killed, was initial success or total failure. Total failure not meaning you die. Total failure meaning you didn't protect those around you. You know, you didn't, you either take care of this bomb or it blows up. Uh, we, we changed it because it, it added the negative connotation to the sacrifice that a lot of guys made. Because back to the original statement, if the enemy does everything right, you just may not be able to win today. So intense. I remember, I mean, the enemy's always adapting. You're always trying to adapt to the enemy. You're looking for gaps in the enemy's defenses, capitalizing on momentum, all those different things. But from 2001 onward, it seems like the IED threat was the thing that was constantly evolving faster than almost anything else on the enemy side. And we were always trying to scramble to catch up, figure out different countermeasures, whatever. And then they would adapt back and forth. So really, yeah, tactics and other weaponry and those sorts of things, yes. But that IED threat is the one that stands out to me as the one that was constantly evolving at a pace that I can't even describe. Um, I mean, what was it called? The Asymmetric Warfare Group or some sort of an IED working group back in the day. So uh, uh, one of them started with a J, uh, yeah. JDOPS or something like yeah, that. Yeah. There was a couple of different ones. Yeah. yeah. But they did a really good job. I mean, I remember having to go in and you see everything laid out. I remember it was either a green zone or biop or somewhere, but all the different new technologies that the enemy was using, how they were adapting to our countermeasures and back and forth and then giving reports like from how me and my guys saw things to pass along or whatever, just to try to build that knowledge base and that foundation for guys already in theater and then guys that were coming into theater doing your job. So man, nothing but the most respect in the world for everybody that does that EOD job. It's uh, it's it's incredible. Um, so first deployment then, what is it like uh, working your first real problem when it's not schoolhouse? Yeah, it was, it was, it was interesting. I, you know, I, I get into this a little bit when I give talks. I, I talked about it a little bit in Pete Excess book called Modern Warriors in my chapter. But in the Marine Corps EOD field, you're all in this very tight array of rank, right? E5, E6, E7. Our E8s and E9s are on the master, master gunnery sergeant side. They, they, we don't allow any first sergeants or sergeant majors. And the reason why is those two ranks can come from other units. To be an EOD, you have to wear the badge, the way it's structured now. It could change one day. If we were as big as the Navy, it would be different. But because we're so small, we can breed our own officers and still function. And so all of our senior enlisted are master, master gunnery sergeants that still can do the job. Many of them were still taking bombs apart because, quite frankly, we didn't have enough of us for how many were getting blown up. And then also all of our officers are either war officers or one officers that became limited duty officers. And for those that don't know, that's essentially a war officers enlisted person who passes over to the officer side in a very limited way inside the job field and inside the service. You can trade those war officer bars in for uh, the insignia of a captain, a uh, major or lieutenant colonel. You get a little bit more responsibility, but you're still limited, unlike a commissioned, fully commissioned officer. The reason why I point that out is the dynamic between a teammate and a team leader goes to take one step back. Afghanistan was so much more work heavy, uh, uh, workload heavy than Iraq. In Iraq, we could take two three man teams in a truck, what we call a JUR or, a, or an MRAP, and they could span all everything around Al Assad. You know, it was really big. They could get on a road, drive there, work the ID, come back, go out in like a fireman response kind of way. When we got to Afghanistan and the Helmand province, you're in these poppy fields and you're two or three villages back from a main road and you're walking through these poppy fields across these bridges. The truck goes out the window. The robot goes out the window. We choose not to do the bomb suit for, for te technical reasons to begin with. So now you're on patrol with the grunts when they're out doing their job. If it's a raid or just a patrol or an intelligence or reconnaissance, whatever, you're with them because it's not just when they happen to come across one, but now you've got intelligence and you're going after and you know what's going to be there probably will. So you're, you're gearing up and you're going out with them every time. So we went from a three-man team to a two-man team because we had to have a team of EOD techs in every grunt company in that area of operations. So we went from six EOD techs covering this area to 30 EOD techs covering this area. Same area, same amount of Marines there. And so you have a team leader in yourself 
I was a sergeant. My team leader was a staff sergeant. There were some teams where you had two staff sergeants, some teams where you had two sergeants, some teams where you had uh, uh, two E8s that worked together because your rank was nowhere near as important as your seniority and time and experience. And so I had a, a team leader that had a couple of deployments under his belt. And I was looked at among the young guys as at least a guy who had been on an LJT deployment and was familiar with the job of how it's done. I haven't done it, but I've sat past your seat and watched it done. So I was given a little bit more responsibility early on. And quite frankly, the way things played out in, in Afghanistan, the idea would be in the traditional sense, you deploy as the third man on the team and you run the robot and watch. Then you deploy as the second man on the team. You get out of the truck and you help the guy walking down range be his eyes and ears. Then you deploy on your third deployment as the team leader and you're the only one walking down, taking the bomb apart. It didn't work like that in Afghanistan. If you find it, you work it because if he's 10 feet over there, I've got an IED here, the chances of him having one at his feet, one in between us, it wasn't worth the risk. You better have the skill set and have done the training and read the reports and at least can talk to your team leader and make good decisions. So I worked my first IED the first day I was at my FOB. So I was about six days in Afghanistan when I worked my first IED. Um, and that was exhilarating. It, I, I, I was addicted like that. And I hate to say it that way. That's not the the character I want to put out there, but it's the truth. Like I was young. I'd spent a couple of years of my life finding my way into this job field. I'd seen it done on half a deployment. I'd gone through the school. I'd excelled among my peers. I wanted to be there and be taking apart bombs. That's what I wanted to do. And I hadn't yet lost that good friend. And I hadn't yet seen that good buddy. I hadn't yet had my world rocked. Now, shortly after this, I did, and it puts everything into perspective. But from the first ID to the one that took my legs, I enjoyed the job. I mean, it, it is, it's a, an adrenaline rush. It's hard to find. There are a lot of yogi techs that are skydivers and motorcycle riders because they're looking for that, you know. And I guess for me, it's live television talking about things that people like to get mad about. But you, you, you once you do it, you need it, you know. <laughs> yeah, that might be the scariest of all. Uh, man, I'm getting anxious just hearing you talk about it. Um, but uh, every time those guys went and did their job, I, I mean, I'm feeling it right now. Like I'm thinking about some of those things and being so nervous for them, which is why I always liked when we just blew them up or shot them with a 50 or like did something like like that that seemed much more sensible than walking yeah. through to one. Um, man, that is just wild. What? So after you did get your world rocked and lost that friend, uh, whether they were with you or it was somewhere else in theater or, or wherever else, what was it like to then walk up on your next one? Yeah. So what happened was, uh, it was interesting. So we went for a while before it was really calm when we got there. Uh, they were harvesting the poppies, so they weren't fighting as hard. Um, and we really didn't expect a, a tough deployment it, to put things in a broader geopolitical spectrum. This was the summer of 2010, and coming into the midterms or coming into the election season at the end of that year, uh, President Obama's administration had postured, hey, we're pulling out of Afghanistan. And so from the Pentagon down, the idea was they're going to lay in wait. They're going to let us get out of there before they really, there's no reason for them to attack us because we're pulling out. And it could be because of the pundit reaction. It could be for reasons I don't know. It was, we ended up with the opposite. I think they thought they could push us out even quicker, get us away from the areas most important to them, like the, the agricultural area where they harvested poppy. Our operations was trying to remove poppy and, and supplant it with wheat to try to give them a more legitimate crop. You know, it's like tell a drug dealer to go sell bread, you know. Yes. And uh, I mean, I guess with, with the current war, wheat is a little bit higher value commodity than I realized, but still it was um, it was interesting to try to get villagers to not grow poppy when they've done it for a thousand years. And so they really fought harder. We didn't know that, but it took a month or two for that to happen. So we got there early. We got there in March. And I want to say it was May before one of our guys was hit. One of my, one of the guys in my platoon. So, you know, it's weird too, because you, you work up and you, and you, you live every day with a platoon of 30, but then when you get to Afghanistan, you're broken up into two-man teams. So your platoon scattered all over and you're communicating with them via VSAT with the reports. And so 
In the same day, two of our guys, a guy named Dave Line, lost his legs, and a guy named Adam Perkins lost his life. Two different incidents, two different places. And it was weird. You know, they were in places, counties away from me, but from that day on, it was gangbusters everywhere. You know, they decided to go to work, the Taliban. And so I remember Dave Line was a guy I knew pretty well. I didn't know Perkins as much. And I remember hearing that, and I was like, you know, if he can get get anybody can. I had a lot of respect for him. He seemed to really know the job. He had just been on deployment. And back then, I was real big into running. Not so much now for obvious reasons, but uh, I laced up the tennis shoes I had with me and the EOD, my EOD tent was right next to the helicopter pad. And I just remember going out there and running around the helicopter pad until my feet bled. And I just, I think in the back of my mind, without making it a fully conscious thought, it was like, hey, I may never do this again. You know, that is the consequence of this job. You know, if you don't lie, if you get hit, you don't die, probably not taking both feet home with you. And so that was my visceral initial reaction was just to go out there and run. And yeah, I was processing it too. I don't think it changed how I approached the job because I was confident. And you have to be. Not cocky, but you have to be confident. Hey, I did this and I did that. I checked this box. I looked for remote control. I looked for uh, um, any type of command wire. I looked for the right things before I approached this ordinance. I've got a jammer running. Uh, that, or this ID that should jam any type of remote control. I've, I've done a circle to look for a command wire. I know that when I go down there, the only thing that can set this off is me, and I'm going to do everything right to not let that happen. But it does put it in perspective. It goes from a from a almost, for me, early on, a sense of joy. Like, hey, I went down and did it, and that's awesome, too. A sense of relief. Hey, I'm back. We got the ID done. Let's get ready for the next one. Yeah, that relief one is something that, uh, that, that really brings now resonates with me. This special episode of the Danger Close podcast is brought to you by Red Sky Morning, the seventh novel in the James Reese Terminal List series. It is coming in hot on May 14th at hardcover, ebook, and audiobook. Go to officialjackcar.com to pre order your copy today. What was the day like when you were wounded? Yeah, that, it's, uh, that's an important one, right? Uh, <laughs> so it was August 6, 2010. Um, Helmand, you know, it's not hard. Like in Iraq, and I think it was because it was the first war in a sense. It wasn't the first, but it was the first one to blow up in the headlines from 2003 to 2007, 8. You know, that was Fallujah and Ramadi and Haditha and Hit and all these cities that either in culture or at least in the Marine Corps, you really knew about. They were, you know, huge cities that we went into and learned so much from. In Afghanistan, it was more of a slow, steady burn. But there were little moments that were incredibly impactful that we learned so much from. It changed our tactics. And one of them was the city of Marsden. So when we took Marsden, we took it slowly and we learned a lot from it. But before we took it or before before we held it, um, we had Nalzad. Before Nalzad was, uh, uh, I can't remember the other city. So we learned each time we did these cities. So even though it wasn't, we lost 50 guys. We lost a guy in a way that really sucked, and we took that, and everybody knew about it. We implemented it on the next one. So before, I believe this was before we took Mars, that they wanted to take a smaller town called Safar Bazaar and implement a tactic they wanted to use, which was taking Miklix, which are linear explosives that are that are stretched out by a rocket, putting them on the back of a flatbed seven-ton and shooting the rocket over the cab of the seven-ton down a street and setting it off and the engineers thought they could sympathetically detonate the IEDs in the street by doing this. Well, the opposite happened. It became a huge problem. We, we lobbied against it, but when there are a few hundred of us and they've got colonels that are engineers, it's hard to hard to go in and, and really make that argument. So what happened was all these IEDs, the construct of an ID in Afghanistan is a loop, a loop circuit, like um, the dollar store flashlights you would take apart. You have a battery source. You have a switch that disconnects the circuit. Then you have your your main charge is initiated by blasting gap, which is your light bulb in that analogy. That's simple. It's a closed loop circuit. Um, there's one switch. Arming it is a little bit risky. So what they would do is they would put the main charge and the pressure plate right on top of it in the path that they wanted you to step on it. Pressure plate being you'd step on it and set it off. But they would take eight or 10 D-cell batteries, solder them together and run it 34 yards away and plant that somewhere so that when they came up, they'd put the ID in the ground, but when they came up to put the power source to it, if something went wrong and it was short-circuited, 
they wouldn't blow themselves up putting power to it. That's the last thing they would do. Well, the other effects, talking about that chess game, is they found a way to make the main charge and the pressure switch non-metallic. So the only thing that our metal detectors, which was our main use, our, our main tool to detect, the only thing that was metallic were the power sources. They would be ran under walls. They'd be ran at the base of trees, places we wouldn't automatically think to sweep or couldn't sweep because they were dug under a wall. It's what made it very difficult. We Our detection method was mostly human intelligence. When we got ready to, to go into Safar Bazaar, we had to tell the town we were coming. And it was far enough away from Poppy that its primary purpose was trading. And we knew because of that, the IED components were coming in and out of there from all over that region. So we had identified one building that we knew. We thought it was a hotel from that old Falcon view. I mean, if they knew the drones, the drone footage back then is not what you see now, you know. And so we identified it as a hotel because vehicles that we were tracking would pull in, stay for a day and leave. When we got there, we realized it's a storage facility. And it was literally, this building, this part is full of main charges, switches, pressure plates, initiators. And, um, and so we started clearing the streets first. And because we told them we were coming, they just took all those IED components and made the town into a minefield. We found 207 functional IEDs in two square kilometers um, with six EOD techs, three two-man teams. So to fast forward here a little bit, when they took these rockets and they shot them down these roads and they tried to sympathetically blow up these bombs, explosives don't work that way. That didn't blow up any of the main charges. What it did do was it severed those wires. So now you have these exposed wires. You don't know if that wire is going to a switch, which means it's still energized. And if you connect them, it blows you up. Or if that wire was going to a battery, which means that keep them away from each other and there's no power to it. So you're crawling around on your hands and knees with pieces of black tape, trying to tape these wires to insulate them so you can go back and prosecute, pull them with a hook and line or sweep them with a metal detector, find out what component you have that's been severed in front of you and where the main charge is, a power source. This is very stressful. Uh, for five days, we worked really hard. My teammate and I worked almost 30 IEDs in those five and a half days. The other two teams worked about 20 between them. We just had the, the line share the word because of where we were. And on the morning of the sixth morning, this Marine engineer, a reservist from Tennessee named Daniel Greer, uh, he was a full-time fireman, joined the Marine Corps Reserves because he wasn't doing enough to serve his country. Uh, he woke me up. And he said, Sergeant Jones, we found something we want you to take a look at. So my teammate and I literally walked across the street from where we were birthing. Uh, it was this storage facility, and they had found some conventional ordnance that it, they had recovered off the battlefield. So they really needed us to look at it. Long story short, my teammate moved it. Realized we probably shouldn't. It was a loo tube, big candle in the sky. And I learned in school that you don't move them because they could turn into a candle on their shoulder. And so he walked away and I went up there to look at it because I wanted to see if it was what we call a hung strike or if it could still turn into a fireball. And when I walked, when I stepped away from it with my right foot, I stepped on an ID. And kind of the, the irony in this whole situation is um, no matter how many times you swept an area, you, you don't know that you've got it clear. I mean, and we had lost a, a corpsman that was the 11th man in the 12-man patrol, meaning 10 people probably stepped on an IED before he did. just happens that way sometimes. So we cleared that area. Multiple Marines have been there. I just stepped in just the right spot. The worst part about it was, obviously, it took my legs, almost took my arm, punctured a lung, but it took Daniel Greer's life. Um, he was providing security for me while I did my job. I got them out of the blast radius, but I hadn't gotten them out of the frag radius, which sometimes is a concession you make. And a piece of that wall flew through the air in front of me and hit him under the Kevlar and just the right spot to um, to uh, take his brain activity away, traumatic brain injury. Yeah. Yeah, reading about that part with his, uh, his widow going to Germany in the book. I mean, I know we don't have time to uh, go through. I was going to ask you about a bunch of the different stories in here, but I'm almost glad that we don't because it is so <laughs> emotional to read. I know I get emotional just uh, asking you about them and hearing you you talk about them. Um, what's the next thing you do you remember the the blast and being there or what what do, we, what do you remember next after the blast? Yeah. It, you know, I'm, you need to school me up because I'm, I'm writing a second book and I don't know how to promote a book. Like I don't they wanted me to write a book about me and you saw what I produced. And and it's not some fake humility. Like I just don't know how to do that. And so, but I believe in this book and, and the, one of the last chapters in the book is Daniel Greer's widow. And so I tell that story through her lens, not mine. 
It's not about what happened to me. It's about what happened to her. She's a real victim that day, in my opinion. And so what happened the next is um, the guys got me off the battlefield. And I think I tell this story in the book, but um, they took Daniel off the battlefield first. And, you know, triage is you take the worst first unless the worst is so bad. There's nothing you can do. And so when they took Daniel Greer first, I could let, I was laying on my back. I could see him in front of me. He was, he's oriented completely different because I'd been flying through the air, but he had all his limbs. He wasn't bleeding. He was kind of on his belly looking back to me like he was knocked out. And, um, and when they took him off the battlefield, I'm like, well, he's not dead and he's not missing limbs. Like, does that mean I'm so bad that there's just nothing they can do for me? I tried to put a tourniquet on my left arm was around behind me. So I couldn't see it. My legs were gone. I was laying on my back. When I reached up with my right arm to grab a tourniquet off my shoulder, it was severed all but the, but the, the muscle in the back, it was split. And so I had no control over the hand. And so I, I couldn't do a tourniquet. And so finally a Marine got to me. And as he's working on me, they take Daniel Greer off. I thought, well, you know, maybe like this is it. So I look at him and I said, Hey, um, I wasn't thinking Daniel wasn't going to make it. I was thinking I wasn't going to make it. That's why they took him first. I said, Hey man, say the Lord's prayer with me. So we, <laughs> we kind of do our father, Lord in heaven. And then we both kind of pause. And almost simultaneously, we kind of gave it with liberty and justice for all and kind of had a chuckle because we didn't know the Lord's prayer. <laughs> so sometimes it's intent, not execution, you know. But um, finally, some rings got to me. They they got some tourniquets on me, hit me with the morphine about 10 minutes into it. My eyes swelled shut. And, uh, and the commander of the unit was with me. And he later told me that I just kept saying, hey, I'm sorry I screwed up. Sorry I let you down. And so I think I was kind of panicking. I was going into shock and I was really starting to get upset because in my mind it, it, through the through the trauma and the shock was I caused other people to die you know and so they finally knocked me out pretty quick sedated me I woke up two days later in launch stool when they woke me up my body was was bandaged and t- tubes and external fixtures on both arms and I was happy to see I had both arms it took me a while to remember but I finally did and uh the first thing I asked the nurse when they woke me up was, where's Greer? And I didn't put any thought into it. It wasn't being, you know, altruistic or anything. I just, um, it was the last thing I saw. So I wanted to know the outcome. And she looked at me and without missing the beat, she said, don't worry on you'll walk again. And I, when I, I do public speaking and I, and this is really the, the premise of my entire speech is, you know, she told me what I needed to hear when I needed to hear it, even when that wasn't what I was asking. And I think that's something that that I've kept with me ever since. Yeah. It's on page five of the book. And I was the first, when I was reading it, I was like, oh, talking about your, your dad here and your upbringing. And then I got to that part and I was like, oh, like that's powerful. And the rest of the, of the book is uh, full of moments like that. So um, that was amazing. That nurse in Germany, did you, did you ever talk to her again or? or? No, you know, what's really cool is I've had several of, uh, we had a full medical contingent. We had what was called a mobile trauma unit, which is a big sterile box sealed up on the back of a big truck. And they can almost do surgery in this room. And so we brought it with us on this op because it was a pretty difficult op. And that was the first place I went. Um, and I've actually reconnected with several of the corpsmen and one of the Navy uh, doctors that was involved in that unit. I uh, met one of them in Wyoming on an elk hunt. It was really cool. I was set up for that, actually. He knew and I didn't. Um, and so I went to the Braves game with one of the corpsmen uh, on Memorial Day. Um, wow. I met one just walking down the sidewalk at Walter Reed a year or two later. She just walked past me, started bawling because I never thought about it. They never find out. They they work so hard to save somebody's lives. They're alive when they leave their site, but they don't know if they're going to live. And so it, it was really cool. I spent some time reconnecting with some, several of them uh, for a year or two. I never reconnected with her. But, you know, I look back and I think either she knows and that's enough. Or she had so many of us come through. She may not need to, you know, that, that may be something that she needs to keep that, that kind of chapter closed. But, and also the, ambi- the, um, the, the lack of identity for her allows her to be who she needs to be in my story for me. Does that make sense? And so like in my mind, she had a Southern accent, highly doubtful, uh, but that's where I'm from. So she <laughs> called me on I know what was said and I know what the impact was, mm-hmm. but it's a movie in my head now. It's a memory. And I kind of like that. Wow. And then how long was that recovery before you actually leave the Marine Corps? And then what was the path in the few minutes we have left? What was the path to Fox? Yeah, it's, it's, I'll, I'll, I'll try to be as concise as possible. I'm a long winded. If you can't tell. But, uh, um, yeah. So 
I, I got injured on August 6, 2010. And back then, Walter Reed and Bethesda were two different places. All the Marines and corpsmen went to Walter, went to Bethesda and all the soldiers and, say, uh, and airmen went to, uh, all the Marines and sailors went to Bethesda and soldiers and airmen went to uh, Walter Reed. Well, the problem was all the rehab was at Walter Reed. So you had this ticker on you, this clock. When you got to Bethesda, you had to heal. And so recovery and rehabilitation, the recovery part is to heal and let, let your body heal, which was, for me, it was surgery Monday, Wednesday, Friday, every week for weeks on end. Uh, they go in and open up the wounds, check everything. They're moving nerves a little at a time, so they'll grow back together. They're moving muscles a little at a time, so they'll reconnect to the ligament in the right way because everything's so jumbled up. You tell your leg to go forward and it goes sideways. And so they're trying to get things reoriented that were traumatically ripped apart so that you can use prosthetics. And so that once you get healed up, you move over to Walter Reed and you start learning to use prosthetics right away. They don't let you sit around. So I got injured in August 2010. And I started school in October 2010 uh, using a mouthpiece. Like I was, I was in one of those go-go gadget chairs and I used a dragon device to speak my notes and papers on campus at Walter Reed. And then I went, I started walking in full-length prosthetics in February 2011. So that was about a six-month process. And I was driving myself to Capitol Hill and working as an intern for the House Veterans Affairs Committee while I was active duty in June 2000, July 2011. So it was an 11-month process thereabout because it was right after July 4th. So almost exactly an 11-month process from one up in Afghanistan to being independent enough to take myself to work every day. Um, I couldn't tell you the timeline in between that, you know, this a specific moment, but those are the markers that I remember. Um, it took me till the end of 2012 to retire out of the Marine Corps it takes a while when you're just injured for the VA and the Marine Corps to decide what your ratings are and stuff. And I didn't know I wanted to get out. I lobbied really hard to stay in the Marine Corps and stay in EOD tech. And I actually got the Marine Corps to change its policy to where catastrophically injured guys could stay in the field. And then I realized in doing so, I liked policy and I liked how to get things changed. Worked on Capitol Hill and started advocating for things. And it wasn't big things. It was, hey, if we could just get left-handed, right-handed talk, this isn't a problem anymore. Those kinds of things. And little things that I knew I could get a win on. I mean, I didn't even have a college education yet. And I was helping write legislation. And all Americans can. It's that simple if you get access. And um, and that really spurred my passion in politics. It wasn't partisan-based. It was, it was policy, like outcome-based. And I talk all the time there was between a task and an outcome. If you're focused on the task, you'll stop as soon as the task gets difficult or you hear no. But if you're focused on the outcome, you'll find a new way to get it done. You know, if I tell you to go book me a flight because I need to be in San Antonio, if you're task oriented, you're going to stop when the plane leaves. But if you're goal oriented, you're going to throw me on a Greyhound bus and get me to San Antonio. And mm-hmm. so that's how I tackled policy. What is the way we can make this happen? And that opened doors and opened doors, being in D.C., being outgoing, being willing to speak and share my thoughts and my story. Just you keep meeting people. I kept educating myself. I, I went to Yorktown and got my undergrad there. And um, and then I went to the private nonprofit sector for almost 10 years before Fox picked me up. Yeah. Really? It seems like you've been on Fox for a long time because you're on a lot. And I always love when you come on and my wife and I always watch you and, and <laughs> really appreciate your insights into everything. Um, but uh, how, so how did you get connected with uh, with them? Because it seemed like all of a sudden one day, like there you are and you're a pro already. <laughs> well, that's what's funny. I went during the, I, I was going on as early as 2013, like on the 2 p.m. hour, but nobody's watching. And so I was able to kind of really develop my skill set over time. This is the kind of job like reading a teleprompter. I know people go to school for it. I didn't. So I either had to like, it's a fake it till you make it thing, you know, like you do it, it's how you learn it or you don't get to. And I love that stress of, hey, if I don't get this right, I don't get to do it again. It went back to those IED days and I didn't realize it, but it's what it was. It was feeding that part of my my personality that I had, I had cultured and, and um, conditioned. And so what happened is I, I was serving nonprofits that were serving my buddies and that helped me by being a keynote speaker or being an ambassador or helping even with their operations sometimes. One of them had a gala in DC every year. And through that nonprofit, I met a, uh, a producer at Fox. About a year later, she asked me to come on her show and talk about Kyle Carpenter because the position that I had in, in on Capitol Hill didn't exist before me. I snuck into it, lied my way into it, honestly. 
once the Marine Corps found out I was working on Capitol Hill, they couldn't make me leave because everybody already knew. And like that no-legged guy up in the House Veterans Affairs Committee is fun to talk to. So we formalized the program and brought Kyle Carpenter in after me. And he was about to be awarded the Medal of Honor. This is in 2013, I believe. So the, 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 this is hilarious. So she asked me, hey, would you mind to come on television and talk about Kyle? I know you recovered with him. And I'm like, yeah, of course. This was Gresham Carlson's show called The Real Story. And, uh, and so I go on and get mic'd up. I wear a seersucker suit and a bow tie. That shows you how much I know about it, right? Like the worst thing you could wear on TV because those lines vibrate. <laughs> and uh, that's all I had. I went and bought it at like, you know, belts that day. And I get mic'd up and I'm thinking, what the hell? I'll never do this again. No big deal. And I know Kyle. I know my story. Well, I'd worked at Ditra for a little while and at the Pentagon before I found my my internship on, on Capitol Hill. So I had friends around. And President Obama breaks into the show before they get to me. And the essence of what he had to say was, hey, you know these guys, the ISIS, that I called JV last month? Well, I'm going to send some guys over there to kill them. So he was eating a little bit of crow. And they're like, hey, we need you to respond to President Obama. We'll do the Carpenter story next. So I text some friends. I get some information. I go off my instinct of what I experienced in Afghanistan and Iraq. And when President Obama goes away, Fox introduces me as a Afghan-Iraq veteran, and I give my response. And that really, that started the cascade of producers saw it for other shows. And and then getting in Twitter early as well was was helpful. Wow. Yeah, and it, it is stressful. I mean, I, I do a couple of them live, but most all of them have been uh, video. And I, what I don't, didn't realize is that a lot of times you're not looking at the host. You're looking into, if you're remote, <laughs> you're into like a black box and there's one person yeah. on the camera, but it's just a black box and you hear it in your ear and then all of a sudden you're on, but there's no body language like we're doing now. Like you can't, That's not, right. you can't tell if they want you to hurry up or slow down. There's none of those. <laughs> yeah. And if it's silent for a while, you're kind of like, uh, should I wrap this up? Should I keep going? There's no cues at all. So it's very uncomfortable, uh, but it's still uncomfortable for me. But uh, but I can see how it would give you some of those same feelings as jumping out of a plane or doing whatever else because you're in the moment and you're not thinking about anything else while you're on because you know that, hey, this is your job and there's all these people watching, but here you are right now and it's live. And if you mess up, guess what? There's no going back. Like in this podcast, That's right. Can, hey, you know what I said at the beginning about that thing? What I really meant to say was this. There's none of that, obviously, in your two minutes and 30 seconds on <laughs> one of those shows, especially, you know, primetime when you're like, oh, geez. Uh, or they ask you the question that you weren't supposed to be on there about. And you're like scrambling. That happens. And, yeah. Because you haven't <laughs> it at all. And then all of a sudden you're live and they ask you a question that you didn't prep for or they don't really know that much about maybe. Um, and sometimes those are even better because it's like natural, but sometimes, but it can be very stressful. Um, so, yeah, I know you got to go to the airport, but uh, I mean, you were on, I think- uh, live standby most of the time during the uh, withdrawal. So you're watching that and reacting to it, you know, real time with your feelings and emotions, with your experience there. Um, what was that like to kind of go through that live in front of everybody? And what are your thoughts on the withdrawal now in the time we have left? You know, to answer the question, like to go back to what our previous comment, they, they kind of dovetail together. I never worry about people thinking Joey Jones is an idiot. I worry about the people I represent. There are only so many Marines on television talking about these issues. There are only so many Afghan veterans on TV talking about these issues. There are only so many guys that talk like me that represent this region of the country that, that was born and raised in a trailer that, that you know, um, that, that represents, I don't want to say poor, but, you know, lower income folks that make it. And I always take that responsibility as, as a million pounds. Like I want them to feel represented and heard and their questions asked and their comments made as well through me. And so when Afghanistan happened, well, now, you know, that's narrowing it down to that. These are Afghanistan veterans. And, I, and I'm not trying to speak for them, but for a lot of people, it sounds like I am. And so I'll be completely honest with you. There was such a duality in my own mind and soul during that time. Part of me doesn't trust anything about war at this point. I don't, I don't trust those that make the decisions. I, I, I don't have a tinfoil hat, but I can step back and see that Bell Helicopter made a hell of a lot of money for Johnson, and and we act like that didn't happen. You know, so there's some self-interest that is either there on purpose or not that makes me worry about the decisions made. And so I, I look at the Afghanistan war and I say, we need to end this now. We need to be out of there. Our guys are still dying. Why? 
And Trump comes along and he makes that decision and you want to celebrate it. And then you have someone like Mattis that you really respect and felt like really did the right thing for the right reasons and he disagrees. Well, then you ask someone to say, well, that, that general's never won a war. You're like, oh, wow, you're right. You know, good intentions be damned. Maybe he doesn't make the right decisions here. Maybe Trump's onto something. And you start to try to figure out what's the truth. Like, I want to advocate, like, I want to advocate for killing every one of those SOBs that killed the 13 at the Abbey Gate. I want to advocate for killing every one of those guys that I saw. You know, I, I spent a lot of time in Afghanistan. The two worst days of my life involved kids that had no clue what was going on or didn't need to. And they're responsible for those deaths. And I want justice and I want revenge. And I want that type of mentality and that ideological warfare to get off of this earth forever. It's not up to me. It's not even up to this country. So there's a big part of me that wants to see bad people killed, right? That's part of being a warrior. I want to defend my people. And then there's this other part of me that's now 37 years old. It's got two kids that's involved in politics, that has a mortgage, that understands that, you know, we're not the center of the universe and that we need to keep sending our young to die to war that we're not trying to win to begin with. So I'm sitting here already in this position and now Biden comes in and he withdraws everyone the way he did. And and my visceral reaction is, how dare he? How dare he surrender my war? That's my war. It's not his war. He didn't fight that war. That's my war. I left flesh in that war. How dare he get to surrender my war? And I think that was the general consensus among my most liberal veteran friends of like, what in the world? This is how we're going to end this. But then you have to give that opportunity time to breathe and say, could we, could we do this the right way? What is the right way? Could we do this without bloodshed? Individually on decisions, there's a million things that bothered me about how it was done. I think Biden's calculation was no matter how messy it gets, it's before even the midterms. And by the time re-election comes around, he'll be known as the president that ended the Afghan war, which was a tenant for him through his entire vice presidency. So it's true to character. It's what he truly believes. But that calculus just jumps over the idea that it wrecked the mentality of so many war fighters. It wrecked the lives of not just 13 that were killed that we talk about, but the few dozen that lost legs and had traumatic brain injury. I had a buddy that was there that day that was an EOD tech and had seen the worst of what IEDs had to offer. And he's gotten out and started a nonprofit to help the psych the psyche of the service members that experienced what happened around that airport, babies being thrown over the wall, friends getting blown up. It shook his world. It changed him forever. And we sit at home and because we had two decades of being known to war, it's just a headline or it feels that way. Well, I get to be one of the guys that takes it beyond that. I get to make it personal. I get to explain to you why it matters. Not because I want you to dislike Biden and his decisions. If that's Trump, if it's Biden, whoever it is, this is why these decisions and these series of events should stick with us and stick out forever, even beyond the day I got injured. And uh, and so it was it was a roller coaster. It really was a roller coaster. And I tried to be consistent. That's the one thing you have to be. You got to be malleable and humble enough to come in the next day and say, you know what? Here's what I learned in my sleep overnight. This is what I think about it today. Then I think our audience was really great about following me. And I think a lot of them were experiencing the same emotions. Man, incredible. Well, I know I have to let you go. Uh, I want to thank you so much for spending some time with me today. I have so, I have so many questions for you, but we'll do this. <laughs> we'll link up again, I'm sure, at some point. Um, and uh, thank you for your time and uniform, everything you sacrificed for this country and for what you're doing today. It's sincerely appreciated. So thank you. And when does a new book come out? What's uh, is it? Is it done? Or are you working on it? What's the no, it's it's a 2025 project. Uh, this is the first time I've talked about it publicly. We just uh, we just inked the deal this week, and um, we're going to do a similar approach focused on uh, first responders, warriors here at home, uh, from the border to the small communities, riding ambulances, people that um, that carry the psychological wounds of taking care of our society. Um, my both of my brothers in law are 30 year firemen, and uh, and I think it's a story that needs to be told. Awesome. Awesome. Well, here's this one. Highly recommend it to everybody. Unbroken, but bonds of battle and man, emotional, like I said. So thank <laughs> you for sharing these stories. Everyone needs to to read this, to remember. Uh, and where people find you are on Instagram, you're on Twitter. Where's the best place for people to, to follow along? You're on the news every every night. Um, what, what's, uh, what's the best place for people to follow along? Yeah. Yeah. Check in. 
Fox News, uh, Fox News Channel. I'm a fill-in host there. If you want to link with me specifically, it's Johnny, J-O-H-N-N-Y underscore Joey, J-O-E-Y on Twitter and Instagram. I'm firmly a millennial, so I'm not that active on Facebook. So there you go. <laughs> Got it. I completely understand. Awesome, man. Well, hey, get to the airport and uh, thanks for everything. And hopefully I'll see you soon. Hey, thank you for everything. You're an inspiration and uh, you're doing our community a service uh, with your art and we appreciate you for it. Thanks, brother. Take care. Thank you for tuning in to the Danger Close podcast. For more on Johnny Joey Jones, be sure and pick up his book, Unbroken Bonds of Battle. Follow him on Instagram and Twitter at Johnny, that's J-O-H-N-N-Y underscore Joey, J-O-E-Y. You can follow me on the social channels at Jack Carr USA. Officialjackcar.com is the website. Click on shop in the upper right-hand corner for the merch. And if you enjoyed this conversation, be sure and leave a five-star rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Until the next time, take care out there. Stay safe. Be strong. Keep fighting. Think you know James Reese? Think again. Red Sky Morning is available on May 14th in hardcover ebook and audiobook. Everywhere books are sold. Will there be blood? Count on it.